Okay. Hello. I, I think we're. See, I better not do this into the uh, microphone. Okay. I think we're ready to start. Why don't we begin with a prayer together? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise on this day on which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son. We ask that through our celebration of the Holy Eucharist, we may become one in mind and heart especially that we may become unified as a community of monks and oblates to the glory of your name. We ask that you provide for all those who are in need today. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so before we have announcements, I just do want to say congratulations one more time to Alex since he's still here. And uh, in terms of practical things, are there any, is there anything uh, you'd like no, to say? I oh, I'm not going to have a chance. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to have a chance to eat my cookie. Uh, so I, I have a couple of practical things, and then I'll jump into my talk for today. Um, one of them is that uh, at long last, I'm going to be recording the podcasts for formation and then posting them online. Uh, Sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll figure out a way to get those to you. Um, and they will go along with the book uh, that is published by St. Walburgas Abbey, written by their retired abbess. Uh, so it'll be an introduction to the rule. My thinking is that this is primarily for those who are in new formation as oblates, but obviously anybody's welcome to listen to them and follow along. Uh, then, in preparation for that, I'm going to be uh, sending out uh, some communications to some of you. Uh, though anybody who would like to participate in this, please feel free to contact me. But I'd like to involve some of you in the formation process in two ways. One is, um, as I'm working on these conferences, I'm, I'd like to run them by you because I want to make sure that they're relevant to your situations. Um, some, I, I've noticed the longer I've been in the monastery, the more uh, I, I have to get input from people outside the monastery to know what's going on in the world because um, it's not that I don't pay attention, but I don't, I don't tend to think of things uh, in the way people do in the news, for example. And so uh, I might start talking and saying things that make perfect sense to me, but they might not make sense to people who aren't in my brain. And uh, I, I need to make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. So I want uh, to solicit some feedback that way. And then the second thing is, I'd like for the formation process, the reason I want to do these podcasts is that since we only have this one meeting per month, uh, I'd rather not have to go over sort of the basic stuff every year for the new oblate novices, but I do want you to have the basic stuff. That's really important, especially the rule of St. Benedict. It's just so important. Um, so these podcasts will deal with the rule of St. Benedict and how it applies to life as an oblate. Um, so what I'm hoping is that some oblates, current oblates, those who've been in the program for a while, will be able to help out with uh, talking to the novices and fielding questions, working through some of the, the questions that uh, Mother Maria Thomas has in her text, uh, so that when it comes time for oblation, you really 
feel like you've been through a year of, of uh, preparation and you're ready for it. So uh, you'll be hearing more about that from me. Now, since today we, we did have an oblation and uh, four new novices beginning their novitiate, uh, we also have, there are three other people we're hoping we're going to be here today. Uh, so potentially we have seven people as novitiate in the novitiate this year. And uh, it seemed, uh, I thought it would make some sense to say something programmatic today as a kind of a day of beginnings. Programmatic about the place of monasticism in today's world. Um, I happen to be uh, unusually optimistic about this, but again, probably not in the way that most people would think of being optimistic. But let me just say, uh, part of what gives me hope and encouragement is that um, you know, we have a very small and pretty much unknown community here, and we don't promote ourselves that much. Uh, somehow or other, we've managed to attract over 20 new oblates in the last three years. And before that, we were averaging about three a year back to 2012. So we've really had this big growth in the program. Uh, after a long kind of dry spell, we, we started the program, I think, 1999. We had a big class. It started as a, a class for Lexio Divina that then became the Oblate program. Then we kind of had, you know, an, an Oblate per year, maybe a couple. Um, and then really it's, it's grown very quickly. So that suggests a real thirst for what we're doing here, which uh, suggests that the Holy Spirit is in it. Um, so, on the one hand, that's not surprising to me because I was attracted to monastic life. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up Catholic, I didn't even realize there were still monks around. I didn't find this out until uh, after college, believe it or not. I knew they were religious, but I just assumed, you know, uh, as kind of in the popular imagination, when you think of religious, everybody thinks of Franciscans and Dominicans and maybe Jesuits. Um, so uh, I grew up with Norbertines, and I didn't even realize that uh, they actually have a monastic kind of way of life. They have abbots and abbeys and so on, but I didn't know what that meant. So as soon as I found out that there were still monks around, I was very interested. And um, so that attraction makes sense to me. Uh, then uh, the other thing that kind of pushed me toward talking about a, a sort of programmatic uh, beginning of a new oblate year was uh, we just had our icon workshop this past week and it was it was very lovely you wouldn't know it but we had 20 plus iconographers in here working on icons all week and uh, Friday night we had uh, the iconographer and his son who's his assistant uh, for a recreational meal at the monastery and Vladislav was saying uh, uh, so he's he's Russian he had to leave Russia some time ago because religious iconography was not permitted there in the 70s and 80s. And uh, so uh, to practice his craft, he needed to go elsewhere. And uh, so he, he knows the situation of the, the church broadly understood and the, the challenges that we have uh, from that perspective of uh, being born in the Soviet Union. Uh, but we were talking about our, our optimism for the future of the church, um, that we're, we're going through a kind of purification right now for sure. But uh, the, he, uh, like a good uh, fellow countryman of Dostoevsky, I think uh, he sees in the church's love for beauty a way 
forward so that we have something to propose to people in the world uh, that uh, I don't have any compunction saying this, you know, a lot of contemporary art isn't very beautiful. Uh, whether it be music or uh, tactile arts or architecture or whatever. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. I just spent um, you know, a month in England and every couple of miles you have an incredible church from 1200. <laughs> and they're just beautiful. And so even people who aren't believers are attracted to that. Uh, so the last sort of uh, where I'd like to begin in talking today is with the idea of the Benedict Option. Because several of you have come to me and asked about implementing the Benedict Option. How many of you know what that is by, by some measure or other? Okay, interesting. So here, here's where it comes from. Uh, I'm going to talk to this morning uh, and beginning of the afternoon about a philosopher whom I like. His name is Alasdair MacIntyre. And uh, what you'll want to know about him is that he was born in uh, 1929. He's still alive. He just gave the, I think, like a keynote address at the Notre Dame conference this past week at, at the age of 89. And he just finished his latest book two years ago, and it's excellent. Uh, but he uh, cut his teeth as a philosopher, as a Marxist in the 40s and 50s. And uh, as late as the mid-70s, he was very skeptical about Christianity. Uh, but as the revelations came out of the Soviet Union under Khrushchev about what happened under Stalin, uh, he was appalled to see his fellow Marxists try to apologize for Stalin. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a series of essays in the 60s and 70s trying to grapple with how does a Marxist criticize Marxism? Like, where do you stand in order to criticize a, a set of ideas that you've already embraced at some level. And in working his way through this, uh, he ended up writing an extremely influential book called After Virtue. And uh, he became first an Aristotelian philosopher, which is to say uh, his moral philosophy is one that embraces the idea of virtue uh, rather than, say, morality as embracing a, a, a bunch of rules or laws that we have to follow. Rather, the type of person we want to become, a virtuous person, the person who's free uh, to, to choose what is good for himself and for those around him or her. Uh, and in 1981, he, he took the further step of... Uh, somewhere in the early 80s, I don't know if it was exactly 1981, but around the time of the publication of this book, he entered the Catholic Church. And after that, he became a Thomist, uh, because he decided that Thomas Aquinas was a better Aristotelian than Aristotle was. And he's continued to write for almost 40 more years, uh, but unfortunately, most people who are familiar with him have only read After Virtue, <laughs> it seems to me. When people talk about McIntyre, they almost always make reference to this book. Um, he's gone way beyond it at this point in his career. The reason I'm telling you all this, first of all, is because he's been very influential for me. And I think he's answered a lot of questions for me about why young men entering monasteries have so many difficulties signing on to various parts of the program. And so in terms of forming young men in monastic life, I find him very helpful. But the second reason is that he ends the book after virtue uh, with this somewhat infamous uh, couple of paragraphs. So the, the, the main thesis of After Virtue is that we can't talk about morality together as Americans these days 
because we don't start at the same place. So for instance, when you've, I'm sure you've all had this experience. If you get in a debate with someone who's pro-choice and you bring up pro-life arguments, they just don't buy any of the premises that you have. Like, well, what about the soul of the baby? Well, I don't believe the soul is something religious and so I don't sign on to that. Um, don't you think it's taking an innocent life? No, because uh, I think life begins here. Well, I think life begins here. And you talk past each other. So he points this out in various ways through this book. And he says at the end, you know, you must think I'm very pessimistic about the future for moral debate in America. And he says, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not actually. And um, because I see that uh, he doesn't say this, but he talks about how we're waiting for a new St. Benedict to arise and start small communities where there's an agreement from the bottom up on moral living. How do we live together, etc. So we're waiting for a new St. Benedict. That's where this idea of the Benedict Option comes from. The guy who coined the term the Benedict Option is a journalist by the name of Rod Dreher. And he actually just published a book last year called The Benedict Option. And uh, uh, I, I somewhat know Rod. We've corresponded by email and um, he's allowed me to post on his blog and so on. Um, I, I think he, he does a valuable service by proposing this, uh, but I think it needs a lot of work in terms of how we're going to actually do it. I think he would agree with that. But uh, many of the Oblates have read this book and then have come to me and said, we should do this. You know, have a, a community where we, we sort of argue together about what kind of life we want to create together. And um, so that's what I'm going to talk about today and why I'm actually uh, hopeful that this could work. So uh, I'm going to just present some, some reasons that I'm hopeful and then I'm going to solicit uh, questions from you. And uh, I plan to do a lot of writing about this on my own blog. And I spent my sabbatical kind of thinking about these things. So hopefully um, I come well armed for this battle. <laughs> um, so the Benedict option sounds kind of radical. So Rod Rear says we should make a break with the Imperium as he calls it. And that's a word against uh, used by McIntyre, meaning we shouldn't trust that the secular government is going to be on the side of religious people like ourselves. Um, and so rather than trying to elect the right president, to appoint the right Supreme Court justices, all that's <coughs> fine and good, but at some level what we need to do is form small communities that distance ourselves from input from the culture, which is hostile to our faith, and uh, create styles of living where we support one another and uh, live a countercultural way. Uh, to call the culture to conversion. Now, this just sounds like monastic life, <laughs> right? And, and in fact, one of the reasons I became a monk is because, you know, I think by the time I was about 20, I had very serious questions about the feasibility of a kind of uh, uh, integrated uh, political life in our country. Uh, I, I found it quite vexing as a youngster from uh, Wisconsin to have people in Washington legislating things that had nothing to do with the culture, particular culture of Northeastern Wisconsin and its history and so on. But that's not, that's no different from any state, you know, that uh, uh, each 
place in the world has its own culture, and it's in those local cultures where you can have discussions about how do we want to live? And it's very, very difficult for someone a thousand miles or more away to be a part of that discussion, right? So the, the tendency is we, if we centralize overly much uh, is to sort of block out local cultures. I'm gonna come back to this because this raises questions like as Catholics, because aren't we supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a universal church under a Pope, so we should be kind of uniform in a certain way. Um, so in any case, uh, I, I had questions all my adult life about whether what I call liberal modernity, um, so basically the, the political assumptions we've made since the Enlightenment, let's say, or since the French Revolution, uh, whether or not this can really sustain in the long run Catholic faith. I don't think it can. And in fact, I think it's hostile in many ways. But we could, because Christianity was so strong sort of in our American genetical makeup, uh, we've been able to carry on as if there isn't a problem for a long time. And again, uh, for many, say, conservative Christians, and actually for liberal Christians as well, the feeling is, well, if we just get the right politicians in, they'll pass the right kinds of laws, and uh, we'll be able to live our faith in the way we think right. And you see, I don't have to tell you where we are politically uh, <laughs> to demonstrate that this isn't working exactly. Um, another way to put this, though, just from, again, inside the monastery, this was a, a gamble we made, you know, bargaining that we could use worldly power to achieve spiritual ends. Okay, so this is already a little bit of a problem. But we were used to doing that because, you know, our history for most of us is Christendom in Europe, where you really had a kind of synergy between the throne and the altar, as they used to say. Um, and again, I don't think that was bad or anything like that, but we're not in that, we're not in that world anymore. We haven't been for a long time, but sometimes we act as if it's still, uh, I don't know, 1501 <laughs> or 1250 or something. And uh, Dreer's first chapter in the, the book, The Benedict Option, he, he kind of charts a decline from the 14th century to now. Um, again, I, I don't see it that way exactly. I see what he's talking about, but I think there are two problems with saying, you know, we had this great... Christendom in the 13th century, and now we've got this, this uh, really uh, broken apart thing. The first thing is that we choose the kinds of texts we look at in the 13th century, and we tend to choose texts that fit the, the model that it was a coherent system, when in fact, um, there was a lot of disparity in the 13th century, if you look at all of Europe. Plus, the, I mean, the church geographically was super small, you know? Uh, again, it's not really possible to have the kind of uniformity that we imagine the European church had in 1200 when you've got relatively young churches in South America, Asia, Australia, all over the place, Africa. We have to figure out a way to evangelize these cultures that are, are relatively newly exposed to the gospel and, and aren't European. So, so there are all kinds of interesting challenges here and we should... I think, find them exciting because the gospel is true for all people and God loves all of his people. So uh, loves all of his children in the world, whatever culture. Uh, and we, we can help all, all, anyone in any culture because no culture is perfect. So the gospel can call all, all cultures to uh, improve, to become better. 
So I think there's a kind of false imagination of uniformity in the Middle Ages. But the other problem is that you can't separate out the bad developments uh, over the past 800 years from the good developments, okay? So say our justice system is so much better than it used to be. That's a product of, I think, Christian teaching. Uh, I doubt most of us would, would uh, trade uh, you know, dentistry today for dentistry in the 13th century, <laughs> right? So um, we have uh, incredible access, we have literacy, you know, people can read for, the, for themselves. Uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages, literacy, it just wasn't possible to produce high levels of literacy among the populace because it was extremely expensive just to produce books. And uh, we have a printing press now. We, we have the internet. We can share information very quickly. And all of these have their plus sides. And all of this comes about from, uh, you know, a kind of confident exploration of the, of the world. Because we believe, as I was saying in my homily today, that God has made the world to be a regular operating system in a way. And so we can discover how it works and we can improve things for ourselves. So all this is good. Uh, so you have to take the good with the bad in this world. You know, this, this world is never, this isn't our final home. And so, uh, yes, we're going to have trials and tribulations in this world, but don't despair. God has overcome the world. <laughs> you know, don't, don't be anxious. Um, so that's, that's another difficulty I have with a lot of Christian rhetoric today. It's highly anxious, and it, it makes us lose confidence that we, we have the truth in the gospel. So, so we have every right to be uh, hopeful because we know Christ. So um, that's my, my uh, sort of background thing. Now I'd like to talk about what we can do uh, together. I have some proposals that I'm going to throw out there and we can, we can discuss them now if you feel like it or you can think about it and write to me or call me or whatever. We get on with it. Um, so first of all, the importance of localism. Uh, this is one of Dreer's real important points, and I, I think he's extremely right on this. Again, I think McIntyre is behind his thinking. Uh, in one of McIntyre's books called Dependent Rational Animals, he answers the question, how, how big does the community have to be to be virtuous? So he says the family's too small, but the nation state is too big. So it has to be something in between probably like a neighborhood type thing, at least. As much as possible, the, the community has to be self-sufficient. It has to be able to provide for itself. Um, this is a challenge, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges, though we see even in secular culture an awareness that uh, too much sort of globalization has a downside to it. So like local farms uh, are, are very hip these days, restaurants that have their own farms and gardens nearby where they bring in their own eggs or whatever. Um, why do we do this? Because we sense that having that connection to the people who actually raise the food that we eat, there's something important about that as human beings to recognize that. Uh, my stepfather is a gentleman farmer and he provides us with quite a lot of our beef throughout the year. Um, and uh, he does this for my siblings and step-siblings as well. And uh, it's, it's nice to know that uh, uh, these animals who are feeding us were treated well, for example. I know they have a good life. 
Uh, I get to see them uh, every so often, and um, they don't, they're not stuck in barns um, and then just kind of harvested brutally. But they, they live out their life, and then they, they become, uh, they give their lives so that we could have our hamburgers or whatever. Um, so, but this localism is something I think you're aware that we're grappling with just as people, not, not just as Christians. Let me say something about uh, the, the Catholic Church as a, as a monarchy, because um, the church has been part of this movement towards centralization and bigger and bigger structures. So one of the things that's interesting about the Middle Ages is that there were lots of little tiny communities and they may have at some level promised fealty to the king. But in those days when there were no telephones and no cars and uh, no drones, uh, <laughs> you couldn't, the, the king couldn't really enforce much in terms of justice to people who were too far away. So you had lots of local uh, neighborhoods, villages, where older forms of justice were still... The, the norm. And this might include things like, you know, a trial by fire or, uh, you know, dunking someone in water or something like that. Things we wouldn't consider very just today. Um, so part of the, what happened in European history is that we had a greater and greater centralization to standardize the procedures of justice. And this was a good thing. But again, it had a downside because now we've got all the power sort of instituted in this faraway place. And the church went through a similar process. So we used to have lots and lots of local churches all over the place who almost never saw each other communicated. We used to have lots and lots of different liturgies in the church, lots of liturgical rites. We have fewer today. We have preserved many of them. Uh, but there's been a, a tendency to standardize. There used to be lots of different versions of the scriptures because um, you know that we didn't have proof texting. You could, or not proof texting, but... When scribes copied a book, uh, they may have made mistakes, and these got promulgated uh, in some corner of, the, of Europe. And uh, it took a long time before we could have standardized versions of the scriptures because you couldn't collect all the books in one place. It just didn't work. Um, so we had a lot of diversity in the church's observance for the first millennium or so. Gradually, there's been a greater and greater centralization, especially in the person of the Pope. Um, but that's one way of being the church, having a, a kind of monarchical Pope. In Vatican II, uh, there, there was a movement toward what we call subsidiarity. And the basic principle, you can actually go, I, I, I may, got a quote here from, this is uh, paragraph 1883 of the Catechism says, uh, socialization also presents dangers. Socialization meaning the sense of implementing socialism, where we sort of have a huge group of people that share everything. Excessive intervention, this is the catechism now, excessive intervention by the state can threaten personal freedom and initiative. The teaching of the, the, teaching of the church has elaborated the principle of subsidiarity according to which a community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. Um, 
in American political thinking, this would be something like federalism, right? So uh, local communities, individual states should have their own internal coherence. And then the federal government's job is to coordinate the local communities, the states with one another to provide for things like a common defense that the states can't do for themselves. Um, but the federal government, according to the catechism, should not interfere with local government as much as possible, okay? Now, this is interesting because um, we have a Facebook page for the monastery, and to have a, a group Facebook page, uh, it's necessary to have it linked to a personal page. So it's linked to a page under my name. And, of course, if you're on Facebook, all these people that you, everyone you've known in your life finds you. And, uh, and then you, you can open up and read what they're thinking about. And they're all thinking about federal politics all the time. You know, that and maybe, you know, maybe their kids graduating high school and maybe some cat videos. But otherwise, it's politics, politics, politics at the federal level. And this is not a healthy thing, actually. This isn't a healthy thing. Because, you know, I don't pay that much attention to federal politics. And my life is fine. Now, maybe things will go terribly. But it, things will go better for me if I know my neighbors. And we can act together in a coordinated way and live our life together and um, you know, resist certain types of encroachments on, on our prerogatives. So, um, so this kind of localism is actually part of the church's own teaching. And it's important to realize that uh, we've gone through, before Vatican II, we went through about a century of a bit of imbalance. The First Vatican Council was, was canceled before it was finished. They began uh, with an article on the Holy Father and they were supposed to continue with articles on the bishops, priests, and laity, but they, they got shut down because of the Italian reunification process that was going on at the time. And uh, so it was only at Vatican II that we finally got around to figuring out how the bishops are to work together, how the priests are to work with the bishops, how the laity are to take their proper place in the church. So, um, but meanwhile, in that century, our mindset was the Pope is kind of you know, where we focus our attention. And again, that's, that's not entirely healthy whether you like the Pope or not, you know, it, uh, I didn't, uh, Benedict the 16th, before he became Pope, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, he, he cautioned John Paul II about traveling so much because it, it sort of undid the work of the council. It focused all the attention on the Pope rather than the local bishop in the parishes, which is where the, the, where our life as Catholics really takes place. And then the, the higher echelons of the hierarchy should coordinate between the local churches rather than sort of issue teachings that, that sort of, you know, top down go all the way to the bottom of the church. Because it's hard to know again, uh, especially in mission fields, you know, how to deal with sticky situations in, in populations that haven't been Christian very long. Okay, so here, I'm talking about us. So this is, uh, we have a monastery here, we have a vow of stability. Uh, you're welcome here anytime. Uh, all of you live close enough that you could get here today. So we can talk about encouraging one another to share some certain things in common, to talk about how to live, to give each other ideas, to ask each other questions, and hone a kind of common understanding of what our vocation is from God. Uh, so that's my thinking about where we start in talking about uh, the Benedict option together. Now I need to say why I'm hopeful and optimistic about all this. So my first point, see if I can find it here. I had a number one. 
And uh, in, in the church, in, oh, here it is. Yeah. So, I, I said this uh, sort of accidentally. I was kind of put up to saying this about three years ago uh, when, when Brother Linus was still with us and was the, the Oblate director. He was giving a, a talk at an Oblate meeting. And he said, yeah, uh, Catholicism is not a religion. Right, Father Pryor? He <laughs> sort of put me on the spot. And uh, I, uh, I agreed, but then I, tried, I sent around an email trying to explain what I meant by that. Uh, but I, I, so now that I have a chance to explain myself in, in, to you in person, I think one of the things we can do that will help us is to get rid of the idea that Catholicism is a religion. And what I mean by that is it's not one set of beliefs among other systems so that we sort of personally choose to be Catholic. We could, uh, but that's, we would understand that theologically that God has called us first, right? So, um, but the way religion is talked about in American political uh, jargon is that each individual sort of has this buffet of spiritualities and religions you can choose from. And then once you choose that religion, you have a bunch of things you're supposed to do to be spiritual or to communicate with God and so on. Um, I'd like to take seriously the idea that when we were baptized, we died to this world. So our faith is not, again, so much a matter of choice as of call by God to die and rise again in baptism and to live uh, Christ's life in this world. One of the images I like to use is from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. He says to the Philippians, it would be better for me to go and be with Christ, but for your sake, he's asking me to stay here. <laughs> so we, after our baptism, we really have died, but then God sends us back in, into the world to bring other people to him, to be that salt and light. Uh, so this, does, this happens to all of us. It's not just a job for the clergy. Um, and I don't necessarily mean you have to get a degree in apologetics and go into your workplace and start debating whether or not God exists. <laughs> um, but to, to, uh, this is part of the communal aspect. We can argue about this. McIntyre's idea of a virtuous community is one that argues, you know, in the sense of we, we talk with one another about our common goal, and then we discuss how to get there together. How can we do this together? And um, uh, we need the virtues so that we can have profitable discussions that, that, uh, where we can give each other the, the honor of being listened to, etc. And we can speak clearly to one another. So, uh, if we truly died in baptism... Uh, Catholicism is not exactly a religion. It's just, it's what, you know, it's, it's an effect of what God did in the resurrection of Christ. Um, so, part of the problem is when we think about religions, again, and the idea of them as a personal choice, uh, a personal choice lacks the force of objective truth. Right? So I don't know, now this is something that is happening uh, all over the place. I, I read this past week that somebody is 
I don't know, suing the state or something because he wants to change his birth certificate. He's 69 years old, but he feels like a 49-year-old and feels like he deserves to be treated like a 49-year-old. <laughs> I'm not kidding. But you need, What's that? <laughs> but you, this, is, this is the new thing. We get to de- decide all these, these subjective things. But we all know. As I said, this lacks the force of objective truth. I'm 48. I can't change that about myself. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm Catholic. And in a sense, I can't change that about myself either. You know? uh, so to cast Catholicism as a religion based in, in personal choice is to take away some of the strength of its objectivity. Okay. Um, by the way, I, sh- I should mention that from the Catholic Church's perspective, uh, anyone who's baptized is part of this project, whether they know it or not. <laughs> so, um, so this includes anyone baptized into Protestant faith where we recognize the baptism. Um, there are some sort of newer versions of, of sort of Christian belief that, that the baptism we, we don't recognize is valid. I don't need to go into that, but I just it's important to be aware of that. Uh, so, um, so part of the difficulty in this, as I've indicated already, is, is a, a political difficulty. And I don't mean that as conservative versus liberal, nor is it a question of choosing between, uh, say, you know, federalism or socialism or something. Uh, it's the whole problem of these large-scale nation-states that I've already talked about. So I've, I've indicated that. Um, so let me, let me get to the bottom of this. I've skipped around a little bit already here. Okay, so the other reason I I think religion is a difficulty as a concept, this comes from uh, uh, an Orthodox priest named Alexander Schmemann who died in the 80s, I think. So he used to say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a faith. And what he means by that is, the old idea of a religion is it's a set of rituals that bridges the gap between men and God. And so if you do the right sacrifices and you do this, this, and that, you can invoke God and, and, or the divine, let's say, because I'm thinking of pagan religion in this case. And here's what happened in the resurrection of Christ in, in the crucifixion and resurrection. When Christ is crucified in Matthew's gospel, what happens among other things? So there's an earthquake and... The sky gets dark, and yeah, you got curtain of the temple rips. Yeah, so and what that means is that the the barrier between God and the world is not there anymore. Okay, so God's Holy Spirit has flooded the world, and God is present in this this new fulfilled way in the lives of the baptized. Okay, and our our mission is to consecrate the rest of the world to God, to bring the rest of the world to God. Uh, and we, we don't need to bridge that gap anymore because through baptism, Christ lives in our hearts. We, we don't have to have special uh, rituals and so on to make God present. Now we do have rituals, but they're not religious in that sense. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, they are commemorative in the sense of making us aware of what's already taken place and being there as it's taking place, right? So the, 
the sacrifice of the Mass is that moment when Christ becomes incarnate. Uh, and because God is outside of time, uh, it, it's not something that happened a long time ago that we're remembering. It's happening right here, but in a different mode. Okay? This is a little tricky to understand, but uh, again, religion is often talked about as if you've got to do a certain, there are certain things you have to do, and then God will approve. And it's actually the opposite way for us, again, as Christians. God has already acted and we respond. <laughs> it's not that we do things and God responds. It's that we become more and more aware of what God has already done for us and what he's doing for us right now. Uh, and the sacraments of the church help to create in us an awareness of this. They help to train us to be able to see, to become contemplatives, which is another point I want to get to. Um, I could go on with that. Let me... Let me take a break there. Have I said anything that's so confusing or, or off the wall that it's troubling or anything you want clarified? Okay. So let me talk about contemplation next because this is really crucial too. Uh, the church traditionally has prioritized contemplation over action. In my opinion, we're not so good at that right now. <laughs> Uh, we tend to prioritize action over contemplation. Uh, so just at, on a, you know, a very sort of popular level, uh, here's another thing I see on Facebook regularly. Um, I, so there was another mass shooting this week, I guess. I don't know the details of it. Yeah, California. Yeah, yeah. So this is really terrible. Um, and people will post things that say, uh, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. We want action, ban guns, right? And so there's a sense that uh, prayer is opposed to activity in some way. Uh, I find that a little strange because I would think if people prayed more, they wouldn't become mass shooters. Uh, if, if, uh, if we were uh, really giving our lives over to the Prince of Peace, for example, that... Uh, so I don't see that these things are in competition with each other. We might even figure out a way as a people to regulate firearms in some way that we would all agree to that would be profitable in some way. I don't know. I, I don't really have a stance on this politically. But it's just strange to me that uh, um, just any kind of reflection is ruled out. You know, we don't want you, we don't want you to think. <laughs> uh, I don't want your thoughts and prayers. Um, but maybe we do need to think about this more. Maybe that's the problem, is that we haven't really thought in a productive way about why our world is so violent. Um, or, and maybe we haven't been able to think together about it because, because all we do is argue about, uh, you know, e either we argue with the other side or we sort of gripe with our own kind about the other side. <laughs> but we don't have a sort of constructive way of talking about these things where I can see my own shortcomings because other people can point them out to me and I can point out their shortcomings and we can come to a greater sense of the truth together. But this requires reflection. It requires shared living. It requires virtue because I have to listen. I have to be able to speak honestly. I have to be humble about the fact that I don't know everything. Uh, and this takes... Uh, Interior work to do this takes uh, what, you know, what I would call contemplation. So 
receiving from God the truth that he proclaims in his word, and then allowing that to change me interiorly. So I start to think differently because when I think differently, then I act differently. So that's the reason, I, again, I don't see that action and contemplation are opposed to each other. Because uh, anytime we act, it presupposes ideas about things. So for instance, if I take, just to take a trivial example, if I take a sip of coffee, I've presupposed that uh, I need that caffeine to get through this talk. <laughs> so I've already made some kind of theoretical uh, commitment that, that undergirds that action. And if you think about anything you do during the day is a representative of something you think is important. So for instance, if you get eight hours of sleep a night, you must believe at some level in your brain with your, your thinking mind that that's what you need, eight hours of sleep, okay? Uh, so to, to act without adverting to that thinking process is not to challenge our thinking at all. And it also is to, it, it puts us in danger of absorbing ideas from other people unreflectively. Uh, this is one of my great concerns about the internet. Um, normally, when someone offers us something we could do, someone comes up to you on the street, well, when I was a younger artistic type, I used to have you know, long hair and, and uh, I wore, uh, clothes befitting a, a musician, as you might imagine. And when I would take the bus home to visit my mother, um, lots of times people would come up to me and, and try to sell me drugs because they figured, well, that must be the kind of person you are, right? Uh, and I'd say, no, thank you. And then I'd try to find security right away, see what I can do. Um, so, but when someone comes up in that situation and offers you, tempts you with something that's not good for you, um, there are lots of disincentives. There are lots of way, reasons to stop and think about it. Like I might get caught. If someone might see me. I, I don't want to spend that money. Uh, I need it, you know. So it kind of slows things down. You have to think about it. On the internet, the whole sort of gadgetry is set up so that you don't think too much. You just click, 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 click. And there isn't that time to reflect, should I click on this? It doesn't take very much to click on, on you know, it's just that, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's that, right? So you have to move the mouse a little bit. Um, but it doesn't allow us to become contemplatives. It allows, it gets us caught up in a bunch of thoughts that aren't our own. Because as soon as we click on that, we just, we flood ourselves with whatever is on the next link. And we click the next link, we flood ourselves with that. So I think uh, becoming contemplatives is actually really urgent, urgent. Um, a few things I want to say about that. The first thing is that uh, we, we would do well to rehearse in our own minds how important it is uh, that we make heaven our goal. Okay? Um, or if, if, I, if you want to put it in more traditional terms uh, in the Catholic uh, lingo, think about the four last things. So death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So we are going to die, and we are going to be judged, and uh, depending on how we have cultivated a life in service of God or rejecting God, uh, we will fix ourselves for eternity, either, either in a state of happiness or in torment. So that's something that's good to reflect on, because that, that's uh, uh, 
ultimately that's our goal is to get to heaven. One of the difficulties in this, as I like to tell the brothers, is we haven't used our imagination to make heaven very appealing. So uh, I suspect that when many people think of heaven, if they do, they stop thinking about it because they think, oh, uh, well, it'll be me sitting alone on a cloud in some white garment with a harp that I don't know how to play and just like looking at the sky uh, or I'll just like stare at God for all eternity. And um, well, it doesn't sound very fun, but it's better than hell. So I'll try not to go to hell. Uh, but heaven is kind of like only chosen because it's not hell. But in fact, heaven, we believe it's, it's actually the fulfillment of, of all of our best desires, right? All of our best desires. Um, I often think too of, you know, these, these scurrilous songs like, uh, I don't even know the tune for this one, but, uh, you know, in heaven there is no beer and that's why we drink it here. You know, kind of stuff. So uh, there's this feeling like God's going to take away all the fun stuff and, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of sit there and, and have the beatific vision and it'll be great. Um, so we need to cultivate, using our imaginations, a desire to be in heaven. Uh, I, I like to think about all the people I hope that, that are there that I'll get to meet. I, I, I look forward to, re, to meeting up with my, my grandparents again, for example, or the, the great uncle that I never really knew, but who was a musician. And I'd love to know more about his life, but it's lost in this world. Not very many people remember him anymore. Uh, I hope he's in heaven. I pray for him and uh, I hope to get there too. And then we'll, we'll be together. I think in the terms of beatific vision, one thing that's helpful is... Um, we can already, through contemplation, achieve some foretaste of the beatific vision if we see God in all things. Okay, so I'm going to talk about that next, but uh, the beatific vision doesn't mean that we won't be together, but we won't see each other, or that we won't have any uh, learning to do. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa has this wonderful image that perfection is eternal growth in perfection, right? So uh, in his view, heaven is a dynamic state where we get closer and closer to God because we know more and more about the truth. Uh, so if you enjoy learning or if you enjoy reading, uh, heaven will be like m learning more and more and more and more forever. Uh, so, uh, and doing it with everyone you love. <laughs> you know, uh, it will be like an eternal banquet. Uh, you know, so think of all the beautiful images that our Lord uses to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And we should stir up our own desire to get there, to become the sorts of persons who want to be there. Uh, now, as I've mentioned, we can do this by what I would call natural contemplation. And I don't just call it that. I borrowed it from the fathers of the church. What I mean by this is God in creating substances in the cosmos, in creating the world, has created each individual object as a, with its own nature, its own natural end and goal. So for instance, God, uh, we, we have four cats in the monastery and I, I find them endlessly fascinating though um, sometimes they, uh, they cry a little bit too much. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can see that they, they, uh, they have this, this kind of inner logic that pursues cat flourishing. Like they do things that cats like to do. And when they do things that cats like to do, they're completely in it, you know, um, in a way that we humans find difficult. 
So when God created cats, uh, he had this flourishing in mind that, that there's a certain way to be a cat that is good. And then there are other things that are bad for cats, right? And so um, two of our cats decided to, to kill and eat a rat a few weeks ago, and then they, <laughs> they, they came home with fleas, right? And so this is bad. Uh, so now they got flea collars on because we want them to flourish as cats. And they don't flourish when they have fleas. So, um, so similarly, uh, you know, a, a table has a certain kind of logic to it. We use it for certain things. Tables can be good or bad. Uh, some of these tables aren't very good. You have to put like matchbooks under the leg, otherwise you, 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 the person on the other side of the table is constantly banging it down, right? So uh, each thing that we see in the world has its own inner logic. It has its own place to contribute to the whole. And God has arranged these things in such a way that we can see how they function. We can see what it means for them to flourish and we can participate in this and see how God has ordered things for this flourishing life. Now we also see that things are broken in this world and that's uh, part of uh, what we, you know, the thorns and thistles part of Genesis three. Uh, things all function smoothly in the Garden of Eden. After sin, they don't function so smoothly. Um, but we believe that in heaven, all that will, will reach its, its consummation, right? So uh, all of the substances that God has created will somehow point to their goal and uh, we won't have tables that, that are unbalanced, <laughs> you know. Um, whether this implies that, you know, animals will survive, actual animals will be resurrected in heaven, I can't say that there's a certain amount of debate about that in church theology about, you know, whether the cats will, will be with us in heaven. Um, I, I think it's an open question uh, myself. But my point in all this is that uh, all of these things, God has imprinted the logos on them. God has imprinted an inner logic. And when we learn that, we learn something about God. And we can learn to see God in that. When we see a cat flourishing, we can praise God for that. When we see a beautiful day or, or a tree turning colors and losing its leaves, we can praise God for that. Not just as an aesthetic thing, but because, because it, it works. The trees need to do that to flourish. Um, the ground needs those leaves to become fertile, you know. Um, all, all these really interesting, intricate things that God has done so that the world functions. It's really amazing. And we can see that this is all very complicated beyond what we could have done. So this is an, uh, an intimation that God is caring for us by maintaining this very intricate balance system, right? Um, so that's what natural contemplation is. And it's usually put in uh, patristic moral theology between the life of virtue. So once, once we become virtuous sorts of persons, then we become the sorts of persons who can see God's presence in the natures of things. And then once we see God's presence in the natures of things, we can move on to contemplating God as God is because we'll become conformed to God and we'll understand things from his perspective. Okay. Um, the last thing I want to say about contemplation, and then I'll get questions about this, and then rattle off a few other ideas uh, before we stop. Um, in uh, a very early book, McIntyre wrote in uh, in its final form, 1965. It's called Marxism and Christianity, where he starts really wrestling with the problem of Marxism, 
and his own questions about Christianity. Uh, one thing he does not accept is liberal modernity as a solution to our problems. And he, he says in this book, um, liberalism is what, what he calls, what I'm calling liberal modernity. Liberalism abandons hope. And as I was rereading this a few weeks ago, this really struck me because at the entrance to hell in Dante's Inferno, uh, the inscription says, abandon all hope. So abandoning hope is exactly what happens when we enter into hell. So if liberalism abandons hope, this is a problem. What does he mean by that? What he means is that uh, instead of having, using our imaginations together as human beings with great potential uh, in the image of God, to imagine a future that's better than now, to imagine a future that we can work toward together that transcends this, this moment, uh, liberalism has a tendency to look at in, sort of incremental improvements to what already is. And it gets kind of fixed again, stuck in this world, this material world, cuts us off from any uh, hope of transcendence. Uh, this is to me one of the reasons why modern art tends to be so, so bad, is that it doesn't point us anywhere. It sort of points us back in on ourselves. And so there's no, it doesn't break us out into hope for a better future. Um, and uh, how does this work? How does this impact on us? Here's how I see it. We lose hope when we think everything depends on us, okay? And again, I would say, you know, um, the hyper over-involvement in, in politics at the federal level so on one level, politics is just what we do together when we live together. It's how to have a city together in its root sense, you know, how to live together. Uh, but we feel like we're responsible for everything. So we, uh, everything depends on that vote we've got. Everything depends on lobbying, on protesting, on writing letters to your senator, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is not new again. I first started thinking about this back in the early 90s. Uh, I was a big fan of the original Star Trek series. I was not a big fan of The Next Generation, and here's why. <laughs> so in the first series, it's all about this adventure and encountering these things that are really new. And a lot of times the show would just end, you didn't know what happened because there's some crazy culture that's way beyond us and we can't understand what they're doing, so we'll let that be and we'll go over here. In the, new, the next generation, uh, it's like the galaxy's been conquered and we have these threats like the Borg and so on. But the really interesting episodes were the ones where there's a tear in the fabric of space-time and if the Enterprise doesn't get back there and like knit it up, reality will cease to exist. Like reality depends on us. Uh, if we don't do something, the whole project is going to collapse. Like, that's a lot of pressure, you know? Um, and, but that, that symbolizes, uh, there's another critique back about the same time by a guy who was a socialist, um, who I, I didn't really like his writing very much. Uh, he wrote for the old Gray City Journal, um, which I don't think is around anymore, but it was the sort of communist paper. And... Uh, he said, uh, you know, the next generation was this sort of militaristic uh, thing, and, and the sense of adventure from the early one was, was kind of gone. And so it was odd that he and I would have agreed on that point. 
Um, because this is what McIntyre sees as the kinship between Marxism and Christianity. They both have this sort of transcendent goal and this hope for this, this better future. It's just that Marxism doesn't work. <laughs> Whereas Christianity does, because it's based in God. Um, so that's uh, contemplation, learning to spot where I'm losing hope because I'm putting, too much, I'm putting too much pressure on myself and on my fellow human beings instead of trusting God. All right, uh, any questions about that? I have a couple other points to make, but I will make them very quickly. So um, I do want to give you a chance to respond. And I do want to remind you that I'm going to be writing these things up on the blog. And I, I, the more feedback I get, the better. If you, if you feel like you have something to say, especially if you don't understand something I write and you think, well, that's kind of odd. Because uh, I, 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 I might be a little more lucid when I speak uh, in person. When I start writing, I start thinking like an academic and it's hard to get rid of that academic prose, which can be pretty hard to understand. Okay, three more things I'm gonna run through very quickly. Here's something that I think is very hopeful. I think it's important for us to regain a sense of God as a judge. And that might not sound hopeful, but here's what I mean. Uh, that, that the context of mercy, we, we talk a lot about mercy in the church this, these days, and that's, that's good, that God is merciful. Uh, but the context of this is that God is also the, the judge. And the reason that this is important is not because I want to scare you into you know, following a bunch of rules, uh, because I actually think we're better at that. <laughs> this might sound... Uh, I, I can't prove this, but I think in many ways we're better at that than we were in the Middle Ages as Catholics. Um, we're more aware of uh, the sort of rules that we're supposed to be following than people were in the Middle Ages just because we have more information. We have a catechism. <laughs> you know, they didn't have a catechism back then. Um, so I, I'm not thinking about scaring us. What I'm thinking of is this. Uh, you know, the elephant in the room is that priests and bishops have uh, failed us. And uh, they failed abuse victims as well. And one of the temptations is to think we've got to do something about that as a church, right? And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that God will raise up effective people to root out these problems. But the other thing I'd like to say is that God will judge the persons who failed. You know, that they have to answer for this. Uh, and not only that, the persons, uh, God takes the side of the victims, you know, so, so in, in heaven, those who have been wronged will be raised up and put in a higher place, okay? Um, St. Benedict makes it very clear throughout his rule that I, as an ordinary of the church, I have to answer for my brothers, okay? Uh, if, if they are harmed in some way, that I have to answer for that. So it's the same for bishops or, or their, the priests who are uh, their delegates, um, God will question them on how they protected their flock, right? Now, this is a, this is, in itself is kind of a scary thing to say, but the idea that we somehow have to get in there and effect justice ourselves in this world is too much pressure to put on ourselves. We should do the best we can, but we should also pray to God that he will be the one to make this right in the end. Um, I'm not saying this very well. The best thing you can do is pray the Psalms because the Psalms are just filled with this language that God will judge, okay? That, that wrongdoers will have to answer for it and God will fix what's wrong. 
and God takes the side of the poor, you know, uh, God will, will cast the mighty from their thrones and raise up the lowly. Uh, so this also, I'll say, touches me on a personal level. Um, shortly after the first round of scandals in 2002, uh, Cardinal George asked if we would speak to some victims because since we're not part of the church hierarchy exactly, um, and Benedictine monasteries are autonomous and kind of a parallel structure to the, the, the diocesan structure, his hope was that we might be able to speak to victims and, and not sort of be seen as representing the bishops in some way, right? And in my very few conversations, frankly, with, with victims, what I saw is that there's very little I can do to help them. I, I, I'm not a counselor. Um, I can't undo the wrong they've been through. I can't, uh, you know, in some cases, the, the, the abusing priest is dead. I can't do anything to affect justice in, in that case. Uh, all we can do is place ourselves before God and ask him to fix this. You know, um, so that, that, that radical sense that we really need um, we need help from, from a much bigger place than the district attorney's office. You know, uh, this, this is a much bigger problem. And, but the good news is that God is actually up to the task, you know. Uh, it's, it's not something we have to despair of. So, um, second thing. To, to see how deeply Christ has changed the world and to celebrate this. Because today, even unbelievers give witness to God. Um, we talk a lot about, oh, you know, victimization and, um, oh, this is so bad and so on. But the fact that we care about victims at all is a, is a huge cultural change. There are no ancient cultures that care about victims. Victims get what they deserve in old ancient cultures. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's that. Uh, if you're poor, it's, that's your trouble. In our world, we care about the poor. Okay, not, not, maybe not as much as we should. Maybe we don't care about victims the way we should. Maybe people abuse this and try to claim victim status when they shouldn't and so on. Um, it's certainly the case that we overlook all kinds of victims, say in abortion or in um, inner cities and things like that. But the fact that we even talk about it at a public level is amazing because it's, it's only after God vindicated Jesus Christ, who is the real victim, who is completely innocent, that we said, oh, wait a minute. Maybe all those stories we tell about the victims being guilty are wrong. Maybe we were part of the problem. <laughs> and maybe we actually owe something to victims. And maybe if I'm a victim myself, I have some hope. I don't have to give up. So the fact that this is actually part of our inheritance at this moment in time is, I think, very hopeful uh, if we can see it that way. Um, I've already talked about, you know, uh, that we have better medicine and justice systems and so on. So to, to point to these things and say, yes, this really is good. And this has come about because of, of the incarnation, really. Uh, we, then uh, even if, you know, those who employ these terms uh, don't realize that they're giving witness to Christ. Okay. Last of all, don't underestimate God's love. Don't underestimate the fact that we're made in God's image. And this image can't be effaced. And so um, whatever is true at some level is going to be drawing human beings. And so we have to find a way to hear how it is that our fellow Chicagoans or, or wherever we are at are thirsting for God. To hear where they're, they're hungering for truth. They're hungering for justice. And we can point to something that says, yes, 
uh, it's right to, to seek out truth. It's right to hunger for justice. This is good. Um, and to be able to respond then out of our own experience of finding this fulfilled in the church's proclamation. All right, I have to stop because, you know, part of my job is to, to pray and, and get to the office. So um, let's, let's wrap up here with a prayer. And um, as I say, I welcome you to send me any questions you have or thoughts you have on anything I said today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.